hour number two. News Talk 1110, 99.3 WBT, Pete Callender of the Pete Callender Show. Coincidentally, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110 are the phone numbers. You can also email Pete at thepetecallendershow.com. Also hit me up on Twitter. I mean, if you can find me, at Pete Callender. I will get back to the... Uh, I will get back to the story and the details, more of the details, uh, as well as your correspondence and such on uh, what is being called the Twitter files. I will get back to that in a bit. But I. Okay. So, because the second Twitter files dump came last night. All right. But hang on. Let me get to the. Um, I want to get to this story of uh, Kristen Cinema, the, uh, the spicy uh, Arizona senator. Oh, sorry, Cinema different okay arizona senator kristen cinemas changing her party affiliation to independent in a 45 minute interview the first term senator told politico that she will not caucus with republicans and suggested that she intends to vote the same way she has for four years in the senate quote nothing will change about my values or my behavior she said uh, provided that cinema sticks to that vow, Democrats will still have a workable Senate majority in the next Congress, though it will not exactly be the neat and tidy 51 seats they assumed. They're expected to also have the votes to control Senate committees. So cinema's uh, move does very little, practically speaking. It does not do a whole lot in the way the Senate operates. All right. Now, it does, according to Politico, it seems like it's going to um, give Senator Joe Manchin, or not give him, but allow him to wield a little bit extra power because he's still now that 50th vote. He's still a swing vote there, but so is she, right? Uh, And that's where the power lies. This has always been the case, right? We've talked about this, like on the U.S. Supreme Court, when it's a 4-4 split with Justice Anthony Kennedy, the swing vote in the middle, he becomes the most powerful justice on the nine-member body because he can th- he can move towards either position, and he can extract concessions. You know, if if one side fears that he's going to defect, so it's the most so being in the middle that swing middle makes you more powerful. And I've said before, I said this yesterday, I think when we were talking about Senator Tom Tillis working on the deal with uh, Kristen Cinema on immigration. Uh, I think this is where. Tillis is trying to position himself as well, sort of in that moderate middle, so you get to then uh, dictate the terms more so than you would if you're just, you know, fall in line, lockstep member of the caucus or conference for the Republicans. Now, she would not address whether she's going to run for re-election in 2024. That's when she's up again. So she's going to be running in the next cycle in two years, And she told Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer of this decision uh, last night or yesterday. She's still going to be part of the or count towards the uh, the Democrats uh, committee assignments and such like she's going to she hasn't lost her committee posts. That's what she said. She's going to maintain her position on committees. As for the caucusing, she says she didn't really caucus with the Democrats right now anyway. Not that often, so nothing really changes for her in that regard. 
The 46-year-old said that her party switch is a logical next step in a political career built on working almost as closely with Republicans as she does with Democrats. That approach helped her play a pivotal role in bipartisan deals on infrastructure, gun safety, and same-sex marriage during the current 50-50 Senate. It also infuriated some Democrats, particularly her resistance to higher tax rates and attempts to weaken the filibuster. Okay? So they still, I mean, if Manchin and Cinema hold fast on their positions on the filibuster, uh, the Democrats still don't have the votes to make that change. And we all know the reason why they want to make that change to get rid of the filibuster is so this way they can pack the U.S. Supreme Court with more leftists. So this way they get to win the rulings. Right? This is the first time we've had an originalist court in, gosh, 80 years. And so now all of a sudden, you know, we have to undermine the credibility of the court or we got to pack it. So we're going to, you know, we're, we're going to attack it. We're going to say that the, the court is uh, biased. They're not credible. Their decisions are activists and all of this. Things that they never said before, things that Republicans said before about the, uh, the liberal court and the justices. But now she was on the other foot. Now all of a sudden we got to pack the court. And I would just point out, Republicans never discussed packing the U.S. Supreme Court. That has never been something that Republicans did. Never. I mean, maybe there's a Republican you're going to be able to find some Republican somewhere at some point that said maybe we should expand the court. I've not seen it. And even if you send me some link about it, it never caught on. It was never a majority view in Republican circles or conservative circles. I've never heard of it in the conservative uh, realm. But it is a mainstream view on the left now because the left doesn't do well when they're out of power because you know, that which is not mandated is prohibited. That's sort of the operating mantra of the uh, of the left. Anyway, so cinema still going to uh, be on the committees, get appointments to committees uh, from Schumer. So she's also like a reliable Democrat vote, like 90 percent of the time she's voting for Democratic uh, positions and initiatives. Um, and even before the party switch. She was already facing a challenge or rumblings of a primary challenge from a, um, a congressman, Ruben Gallego, who's not very happy today, by the way. Not happy at all. Because now that she's an independent, he can't primary her. He, he's going to have to face her in a general election. And so what does that mean? It means if Democrats field a candidate... They're going to split support among Cinema and either Gallego or, or whoever the Democrat nominee would be, and the Republican would win the seat in 2024. That's her play. That's what I suspect is going on here. Is that this because she's she's trying to prevent a primary from occurring? Because the the left in the Democrat Party, they're not they do not like her, which is pretty amazing. They don't like her because she won't blow up the filibuster. Like that's it. That's the big thing. And because she won't do that, they're going to knock her out in the primary from the left. By, by the way, she's a former code pink person. Like, yeah, like those moon bats, the people that would like show up inside the uh, proceedings uh, for, you know, Brett Kavanaugh and all that, the, the hearings and everything. And they you know, protest and they, they rip off their, their shirts and they got these undershirts on that have like protest messages. They got signs and they chant and they disrupt and all this code pink, that crowd. She was a code pinker. Um, 
but she's not she's not progressive enough for them because she won't blow up the filibuster. So they're going to primary her. And so rather than face that, she leaves the party, registers as an independent. Okay, now come at me. But you got to do it in the general. And if you do it in the general, we both lose. Your choice. It's a pretty smart move because nothing else changes. Here's the other thing that gets me. She's actually been one of the most productive, and I'm not signing on or supporting all of her positions that she's taken. But she's been one of the most, if not the most, productive senators in this current term. She's gotten, I listed a couple of the things there. She's gotten more legislation passed because of her ability to work with senators like our own Tom Tillis. And she builds these little, you know, call them gangs or whatever, right? These little coalitions. And then she's able to advance legislation and get stuff done. And that's what she wants to do. You could disagree with the outcomes and her voting record. But she's a productive member of the Senate for Democrats. And it's still not good enough. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? It's still not good enough. She gets the gun control stuff. She gets the same-sex marriage thing. She gets the, the, the infrastructure deal. She's working on an immigration deal. And it's still not enough for them. We demand that you blow up the norms, get rid of the filibuster so we can pack the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, it's been a decade since the last Senate party switch. Do you know who that was? Do you remember who that was? Arlen Specter. <laughs> Arlen Specter. Yeah, yeah. He left the GOP to become a Democrat. Lieberman, I mentioned him. He became an independent. Um, There's also uh, Jim Jeffords. Jumping Jim Jeffords. She insists that she will not deviate from her past approach to confirming Democratic presidential appointees, whom she scrutinizes but generally supports, and said she expects to keep her committee assignments through the Democrats. She currently holds two subcommittee chairmanships. Nor, she said, will anything change about her ideology, which is more socially liberal than most Republicans on matters like abortion and more fiscally conservative than most Democrats. She also voted to convict Trump in two impeachment trials. She opposed Amy Coney Barrett and supported uh, Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson. She also supported two Democratic Party line bills, This Congress, one on coronavirus aid, the other on climate, prescription drugs, and taxes. And she said she maintains good relationships with the president and um, Chuck Schumer, but also with Mitch McConnell, who invited her to give a closely watched speech on bipartisanship in his home state several months ago. She served three terms in the House. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. All righty, so let me get to this because I've had this piece sitting in the stack for quite a while and uh, just haven't got, uh, been able to get to it. But on the heels of this uh, Kristen Cinema announcement that she is uh, no longer going to be a Democrat, but she will continue voting like with, with the Democrats on virtually everything, and um, she's going to still uh, be able to, to keep her chairmanships on the subcommittees, so the Democrats are not going to boot her from that. So uh, they still have a, the Democrats are still going to have a majority, a working majority in the, um, uh, in the Senate. But 
what it does is, this is my belief, is that this is a political calculation she made because she was not confident she's going to be able to survive a primary coming from her left in Arizona. So she registers as an independent, and now she's basically daring the Democrats in her state to run somebody from her left against her. And look, if there is any Democratic candidate that gets into the race, her chances of winning are diminished. And the Democrats' chances of winning are also very low because they're going to split those votes from the left. Now, maybe she pulls in some votes from moderate Republicans on some stuff, but probably not. Seriously, unless, of course, yes, unless, of course, they run somebody who's crazy in Arizona and never underestimate the Arizona Republican Party to do exactly that. So they could run someone crazy and then maybe Cinema gets a majority in the general election. But if the Democrats put anybody up against her, then chances are they're going to split more of that vote and that redounds to the benefit of the Republican. But while that's not a great option for her, it's better than the option of losing in the primary. Because at least now... She's going to make the Democrats think about it. And now there's, there is a cost associated with Democrats running somebody against her, right? There's now a cost because they can't get at her in the, in the primary. They're going to have to wait and do it in the general, and then they both probably lose. So do they want to give up that seat? Do they want to lose the Senate seat for their party? Or do they want to keep it independent? This is basically the Lisa Murkowski deal, right? Same thing. She did it to the GOP. Right, you lose the you lose the primary, and then you're like, "Well, screw you, I'm an independent." But I don't know if she's got enough of a base of support in Arizona among Republicans to carry her over that line. So we shall see. So she was delighted, she said, by Raphael Warnock winning in Georgia last week or this week. Was it this week? Yeah, it was this week. Yeah, yeah, this week. So she was delighted, and I'm sure she was because I don't think she gets to pull this move if. Warnock lost. Because if Warnock lost, then it would be a 50-50 tie in the Senate. And if she does this move, then that means that Republicans take control. And then for darn sure, Democrats would be seething at her because they lost control of the Senate. And then there would be a backlash in a general election. I think that's I think that was the calculation. She's looking at a couple of bad options and she's choosing the one that has uh, where she stands the the best chance, maybe not a good chance, but the best chance of the bad options to win re-election. That's my that, that's my read on it. Um, but what do I know? Here's another uh, here's another story in the stack. The GOP is dead. A new GOP must listen to working people. This is from Republican U.S. Senator. From Missouri, Josh Hawley, he said, uh, this was at the Washington Post, he said, the old Republican Party is dead, it has been wasting away for years now, and this month's midterm results are the finishing blow. If Republicans learn nothing else from this election, they must learn that much. As frustrating as the election outcomes are, the death of the old GOP is no reason to mourn. It just means that it's time for Republicans to forge something new a party that truly represents the cultural backbone of this nation, which is America's working people. 
Many Republicans are primed to learn all the wrong lessons from this cycle. Over the past week, we have heard this election is about nothing more than candidate quality or turnout operations. But this is wrong. The problem is not principally the tactics. The problem is the substance. For the past two years, the Republican establishment in Washington has capitulated on issue after issue, caving to Democrats on the Second Amendment and on the left's radical climate agenda, a.k.a. the infrastructure bill. These Republican politicians sided with Big Pharma on insulin and advocated lowering tariffs on our competitors overseas. And then they wonder why working-class independents have little enthusiasm for voting Republican. We'll get into more of this in a moment. News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT, a reminder also, got the bike drive going on this evening. Come on by, see us, drop off a bicycle, new bike for a kid this Christmas. Uh, We will be out there starting in about another three and a half hours or so. Um, And uh, people have already dropped off some bikes here at uh, the station as well, so we appreciate all of that. Uh, I'll be joining Mark Garrison out there at 6 o'clock and... um, we're running until, I think, 9 p.m. So uh, please, if you can, swing on by, drop off a bicycle. Uh, they stay in the local area. It's a great cause, Kids First, so um, we appreciate that. Also, cityofhopeclt.org. If you want to get involved, City of Hope Charlotte is an extension of the Moments of Hope Church under the leadership of our own David Chadwick here at uh, WBT. And um, they've partnered up, the Moments of Hope Church has partnered up with eight local ministries to bring the hope of Jesus to families throughout Charlotte, and uh, if you would like to make a donation uh, within the next, I think, six days now or five days or so, uh, Bill Graham, local attorney uh, who appears uh, weekly with Bo Thompson and Beth Troutman on Good Morning BT, he's uh, he's promising to match, I think it's a $5,000 match within the next week. So uh, he made that promise a couple days ago. So if you are interested in donating money, it'll go, uh, It's a, it, yeah, twice as much. It's going to be worth twice as much if you want to make a donation to a good cause. That's cityofhopeclt.org. All right. So the GOP is dead. Long live the GOP. No. Uh, the That according to a Republican, Josh Hawley from Missouri. He says the problem that we saw uh, unfold in the midterm elections, it was not a, a problem principally of tactics or candidate quality or turnout operations. The problem is the substance. Right. He says, for decades, Republican politicians have sung a familiar tune on economics. They've cut taxes on the big corporations and talked about changing Social Security and Medicare. They've supported ruinous trade policies like admitting China into the World Trade Organization, which has collapsed American industry and driven down American wages. This tax and trade agenda has hollowed out too many American towns by shipping jobs overseas. Our trade deficit with China has cost this country 3.7 million good jobs, while a crisis of drug overdose deaths, particularly among working Americans, has ravaged many of the same communities that have suffered most from deindustrialization. I say it all the time about all different topics. It's sort of the, the common thread. People need purpose. We need purpose in our life. 
or else you end up with these deaths of despair, right? He goes on to say, Republicans will secure the generational victories they crave only when they come to terms with this reality. They must convince a critical mass of working class voters that the GOP truly represents their interests and protects their culture. The red wave did not land in part because voters who cast a ballot for Barack Obama and then turned around and supported Donald Trump. Voters who likely also disapprove of Joe Biden and the Democrats agenda. A lot of them chose to stay home. And Republicans have to win those voters. They're not going to be a majority without them, which means the GOP has to wake up to what they care about, which is what work, family and culture. These are the touchstones of meaning for working people across the country. They must form the bedrock of a new party agenda. Hawley goes on to say, again, this is an op-ed that he wrote uh, last month, actually, in the Washington Post. He said, no nation ever got strong by consuming stuff other people make. That's a great point. He says, we need an economy that produces critical goods here in this country, and creates good-paying jobs for working people. That means tariffs to foster American industry. Look, I am a, uh, I'm a free trade kind of guy, um, but even the founders who were free trade folks as well, to a large degree, they, they understood there is some protectionism that is warranted. They called them infant industry at the time. Infant industries. So if you're trying to nurture an industry in your country, then you want to protect it from some of that competition at first. But eventually, you know, the training wheels come off, the protections come off. But on things that are critical, like, for example, uh, I, I don't think that we should be outsourcing, you know, vital infrastructure projects to particularly countries that hate us. Right? Much like, there's a little known fact, okay, but I'll tell you, I'll give you the inside story on this. Much like uh, all of the, uh, uh, the manufacturing of the firearms by the empire, they, they were, were corrupted by rebels that were working in the plant, right? That's why all the stormtroopers could never hit anybody when they shot their laser guns. It's because all of the sights, all of the barrels were just a little off, so they could never hit Luke and Princess Leia and... Han Solo, they could never hit them. There's no other explanation for it. Right? But that, to my point, you don't want people in countries that hate us making stuff that's you know, going to you know, make the determining factor as uh, whether we live or die. I'm not cool with that. So there were some things like, you know, I'm okay with, uh, what, semiconductors? Yeah, I can incentivize that kind of stuff. It's so vital. Yeah, I'd be okay with, like, us us doing some sort of protection for a while on that, at least until another technology comes along or something. Other people can compete. right? You can compete in other places or whatever. You, you do you. But for vital infrastructure stuff, I'm not as, uh, I'm not as free tradey as I am on other things. Um, what else? It means new antitrust laws for big tech. I go back and forth on that one. Um, to bust up monopolies like Google and restore competition to the marketplace. Oh, by the way, so this reminds me, I was reading yesterday. So, you know, in the gaming industry, they had the big game awards yesterday. But right before that happened, the FTC, in like a 4-1 decision, they voted to block 
Microsoft's mer- uh, uh, acquisition of Activision Blizzard King, ABK. Activision, you probably heard of that name, Activision. Right, that's the old gaming system, remember, in the old games, Activision games on the uh, uh, video games. Blizzard uh, was a developer. Anyway, all, a couple of mergers, doesn't matter. whole point is Activision is, is the one that makes Call of Duty. That's the franchise, Call of Duty. And it's like the most popular game. And it's the shooter game where people go online and you can play each other and you get different teams together and you, you go through and you run these uh, uh, simulations, you know, one team against the other and there are all these different types of gameplay, whatever. Microsoft has been going, because Microsoft and their Xbox gaming platform, they're the third biggest. Number one is Sony, PlayStation. Number two is Nintendo Switch, for some reason. I have no idea why. And then there's Xbox, and they're in number third. Well, Xbox is moving all towards what uh, the cloud gaming. It's like you could buy TVs. They just think to deal with Samsung, for example, where every new TV is going to have the Xbox Game Pass system, which is like you get access to all these like hundreds of games for a monthly fee, and then all you got to do is buy their controller. Like they're envisioning no more console. It's just in the television. And Sony is trying to block this. Sony is trying to block Microsoft's purchase of Activision. Sony says, oh, if they buy... Call of Duty, they're not going to let us, they're going to make it exclusive to their platform. It's going to be Xbox only. And you can't do that. That's anti-competitive. Like, dude, you're the number one platform. So anyway, I don't know how I got onto this. Uh, Oh, Microsoft's response is, look, we're number three in platforms, but you guys are missing the real point here. The real point? Mobile. Mobile gaming. All you Candy Crush people out there? Yeah, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Huge, bigger than the console gaming stuff. It's the mobile. That's where everything is going. It's all on the mobile devices. And that's what Microsoft is looking at. They're like, you guys are trying to block us because Sony is worried that we're going to beat them. You don't understand. We're all going to be dead because if you don't get to mobile, these guys are going to kill us. Anyway, that happened this week, too. I'm sorry. I don't know why I go off on the tangent like that. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Got a message here on the Twitter machine. It's a Pete tweet from Brainwa Brain. He says, Pete, you are correct about Microsoft and mobile. In one of the filings for approval, I think maybe in Brazil, Microsoft said that they wanted to create their own app store to compete with Google and Apple. So imagine if Candy Crush became a Microsoft app store exclusive. Right, that's that's sort of the backdrop. So if you're, I mean, if you're not following anything in the gaming industry, then none of this makes any sense, I'm sure. But what's remarkable is that the FTC is stepping in to block Microsoft from purchasing a game developer for like, I forget what, the, I think it's like $60 billion. See, people don't, re- like, folks who are outside of the gaming industry don't understand the kind of money that we're looking at and talking about, like, when I talk about Call of Duty, any gamer knows what Call of Duty is. It's been around for 20 years, right? Everybody knows what it is. Everybody understands how much that game drives so much and, and like the release parties. That game sells more than any movie takes in. Every single year that game comes out, 
with a new iteration. They got they go back. It doesn't matter. Every single year they're coming out with the new version of it. They do new maps and all this stuff. And every year that game grosses more than any top selling box office smash. That's the kind of money you're talking about. And that's why Sony is like, oh, I don't, I don't want Microsoft to own it. Even though Microsoft was like, look, we're not going to take it off of the platforms. We want as many people playing as possible. Because they're trying to get everybody onto their Game Pass system where you pay a monthly fee and you get access to this massive library and you just play in the cloud. You don't have a hard drive anymore. You don't have any you don't have any hardware to purchase. And Sony doesn't want that. Sony doesn't want people over there. So and then you got that uh Steam that which is the gaming platform or or yeah, platform. Well, it's where you buy games and stuff on PC and the Steam guy, he's like yeah, we're fine with the merger. Like, we trust Microsoft. I know Phil Spencer, the, the top guy over there at Xbox. He's cool. We're good. <laughs> so, yeah. Sony's not too happy with him right about now. Uh, anyway, all right. Let me get back to this. was all about the antitrust laws and stuff for big tech. You got a lot of people in D.C. that do they have no idea. Like, I just explained this stuff, and I guarantee you probably 70% of the people on Capitol Hill in elected positions have no idea what I'm talking about. Have no idea. But these are the people that are going to be in charge of regulating big tech. Right? These are the people that are writing legislation. Oh, I'm just kidding. They're not writing legislation. They got staffers for that. Okay. So uh, while we're at it, Josh Hawley says we should start relocating federal agencies like the Department of Energy, Interior, and Agriculture to Middle America. I love this idea. I think North Carolina should be doing it as well. I talked with... Uh, former Lieutenant Governor Dan Force. This was like, gosh, eight years ago or so. This idea, uh, how we have our government set up, like physically, the buildings, right? The office space, the cities that they're located, or city, they're located, right? Raleigh, right? All of that stuff. We would never build government like we have it right now if we were to be building it today. First off, I mean, it would take like, you know, 20 years to build a single building because that's how long it takes to build anything anymore in America, apparently. But uh, I saw something. The Golden Gate Bridge was built in four years. Four years. And they're trying to put up a, a suicide barrier because it's like the most popular place to kill yourself, apparently, in the, in the Bay Area. And so they've been trying to put up a, a barrier so people can't jump over. And, um, and it's taken, I think, longer than four years to do the just the barrier <laughs> this is the state of it we don't keep we can't build anything anyway we would never build government like we have it now so yes why do we need these departments these agencies why do we need them all located in dc you spread them around a little bit at, i mean at the very least we're going to rack up some extra mileage costs for the lobbyists right at the very least but it also makes it more accessible also there's some Economic development impact, right? You're also breaking up the, quote, deep state, the swamp, if you will, right? That managerial administrative class. You're going to break it up so it doesn't wield as much power when it comes to voting in that area, too. He says it's long past time for cosseted policymakers to confront the real-world consequences of their decisions, economic or otherwise. We need explicit support in our tax code for marriage and family, such as a parent tax credit for working families. We should adopt new protections for parents to ensure they control their child's education and medical care, such as a parent's bill of rights. 
And families cannot thrive unless they are safe. That's why we need 100,000 new cops on the streets spread across every state in America. Right now, the Republican Party stands at a crossroads, he says. Its leaders can, of course, attempt to resurrect the dead consensus of offshoring amnesties and free trade. Quote, unquote, free trade. He puts it in quotes. He says, but that's the path to further losses. I like some of the ideas. I've said it before. I shall say it again. We are in a political realignment. It is happening right now. Because over on the left, this is a story out of the Philadelphia Inquirer. The midterm elections clean sweep by Pennsylvania Democrats obscured a big warning sign for the party. Philadelphia keeps falling behind. Turnout in midterm elections always drops from presidential races, but Philadelphia's overall turnout dropped the most of any county in the state. It is the third consecutive election in which Philadelphia's share of the state's vote declined. The same thing, by the way, the same sort of lagging performance, same thing happened right here in Charlotte. Cities in North Carolina and Ohio with high populations of black voters also had lower turnout. Will Duran from the McClatchy newspapers pointed out only uh, that North Carolina is home to two and a half million black people, half of whom live in Mecklenburg, Wake, Guilford, Cumberland, Durham, Forsyth, or Pitt counties. Only two of those seven counties had above average turnout, voter turnout this year. Guilford and Forsyth were close to average, but Mecklenburg lagged behind the state as a whole. So, like, Democrats should not get too comfortable with their coalition here either. Thank <laughs> you.